0: Well, good morning. Lovely to be back with you, and uh, thank you for a returned invitation. So, um, it's good to be here. How do we live like Richard Emmett did? How How do we produce that kind of character? Um... John O'Donohue, the the Irish poet and writer of spirituality who died very suddenly on uh, January the third, just a few weeks ago, at the age of fifty-three, he wrote a, a poem called Fluent just four lines. I would love to live as a river flows. Carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And that's all it is. But what a beautiful desire. I would love to live as a river flows. Carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And I just wish I had his Irish accent. That You know, just says it so beautifully, and as he says it, all the women in the audience swoon and fall in love with John O'Donoghue. How do we learn to be fluent in our lives, to to flow as a river does, uh, and actually able to adjust to the surprises of a river's journey? A lot of it is to do, I believe, with the environment that we choose to live in. I want to talk this morning and to share with you a few thoughts about environment. About the environment that we cultivate around us. Because it strikes me that the New Testament and the Old Testament as well talk a lot about the environment that we are to cultivate around us. Let me read something from the... uh, daily telegraph i'm not a great reader of the daily telegraph but let me uh, share with you a, a reading i'm probably giving away something of my political leanings at that point don't judge me on the base because i haven't given away my political leanings on it. but um, i came across this article written by eliza chubb who's 15 year, years of age and she wrote this uh, little article which is so well written Uh, when uh, there was that report about a year ago now uh, of the UNICEF report on young people growing up in various developed countries. And it was found that uh, England, uh, Britain and America are at the bottom of the league with regard to sort of happiness quotient uh, amongst young people that it's one of the least desirable places according to the markers of how people, young people feel emotionally to actually grow up in. And she wrote this article in the light of that report. I come from a comfortable two-parent home in South London and go to a good school, so I can't complain about having a deprived childhood. I've no idea what it is like to be a teenager in the Netherlands or Sweden, which come top of the list in UNICEF's report card. But I do have some idea why even fortunate children show signs of unhappiness that puts the UK at the bottom of the table. There must be something wrong with our society that particularly affects teenage girls because many of my friends who appear to have it all act as if something is wrong with their lives. Everyone is obsessed by their weight. Some try not to eat at all. Others stuff themselves and then make themselves sick. Once we had to put up new wallpaper in the bathroom because one of my friends threw up on it. If they are not being sick because they want to be thin, it's because they are trying to be sophisticated by drinking, smoking or doing drugs. The peer pressure is enormous. Some get laughed at because they don't want to do these things. So I'm not surprised that less than half the children surveyed say their peers are kind and helpful to them. Compared to 80% in Portugal, we have a culture of bitching. Whenever people are being discussed, the first thing mentioned is always the way they look. We all want to be considered cool. So rather than say nice things, we call each other fat, or ugly, or stupid... We move around in packs and cliques and there is always one on the outside who is ignored and made to feel an outcast. Humour is sarcastic and the endless private jokes are very isolating. My friends say that bitching is the way it works. That it's the norm. Isn't that sad? Good. Middle class... Home and environment, good school, and yet that's her day to day experience. An experience of an environment that has a profound effect upon how our young people are perceiving themselves. Our youth pastor, who currently serves us, has come from Dublin. He's come to Altrincham, which is a place where the pressure to perform in schools is enormous. It's idolatrous in our area. The whole emphasis upon education, uh, wanting to get bright people, but not necessarily concerned about growing wise people and loving people. And he says he's never come across so many eating disorders amongst our own young people. People who are brought up in good Wealthy, relatively speaking, middle class homes who go, some of them to some very, very good schools, some of the very top of the league tables in the whole of the UK. There is something wrong with the culture, with the environment in which we live. And I want us to talk about what it means to be a Christian disciple. And what kind of environment we are being drawn into. What kind of environment are we trying to cultivate amongst ourselves so that we can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. The Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 following and uh, into about 16 or so Psalms. 15 or 16 psalms begin with uh, an amazing psalm which describes a person who is far from Jerusalem, who is in an environment that is hostile and is obviously full of conflict and of animosity. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak they are for war. Too long have I lived in an environment of conflict, of animosity, of competition, of indifference, of coolness, of bitching. Too long have I lived in that kind of environment. When I speak for what I fundamentally desire as a, as a, as a Christian believer and as a human being, My deepest desires. When I speak of those things, it seems as though the environment around me is speaking exactly the opposite. And so begins this cycle of psalms, the psalms of ascent, the psalms that are about pilgrimage, that are to do with a journey from moving from one environment into the environment where peace and unity and love and blessing are going to be recounted in the psalms that follow. It's the journey of a pilgrim moving from the tents of an environment where there is animosity into the temple of God where it speaks of peace, of blessing, of unity, and of the presence of God. And it's that journey that I want us to think about, about moving from one environment. To another environment. Oh sorry, I'm forgetting that this is what I've got to stay in front of. And that's why I chose that reading that we had this morning. It's very important when you read John's Gospel to realise that when John writes, absolutely every single detail is important. And is actually resonant with meaning. He's very economic in what he says, even though he repeats himself endlessly. But he is economic with his ideas and his notions. In what he recounts of Jesus' ministry. And one of the secrets of learning to read ancient texts like John's Gospel is to be aware of the form in which they speak. And one of the forms that they speak of is a a notion that has been coined by uh, scholars that call about inclusio. They call it inclusio. In other words, first and last, beginnings and endings. How a text is shaped is very important. So here we are in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And we come across the first words that Jesus speaks. The very first words that Jesus speaks. And they're spoken to people who will become his disciples. And the very first word that he he speaks is a question. And the question is, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? That's no accident. John is already giving us an indication of that which is most fundamental. And it's a pretty good question, isn't it? What are you looking for? What, in other words, is your deepest desire in life? A very, very good question. But as in John's Gospel, so it is here. Very often he actually treats something as a normal conversation and it seems to be a surface concept. But actually that surface concept is going to be explored with ever and ever deepening meaning. So he asks the question, what are you looking for? And the disciples say, where are you staying? Or, more literally, where are you remaining? And Jesus says to them, come and see. And it goes on to say, and so they went with him to see where he was staying, where he was remaining. And they remained with him that whole day. And it goes on to say it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they first met with Jesus. In those two verses, you just have the word remaining three times. And it seems to be on the surface about come and see where I'm sleeping at the moment. Come and see where I'm resting at the moment. Come and see the home in which I'm staying. But three times the word remain is used. And remaining is one of those key words in John's Gospel. So what appears to be a surface question in response to Jesus' question to those disciples, what are you looking for, is in fact explored ever more deeply, with ever more resonance of meaning within the Gospel of John. And just for a few moments, I want to just trace through that idea within John's Gospel. Because the idea of remaining with Jesus, of him becoming our environment that we inhabit, that we dwell in, is in fact connected with this theme of cultivating the right environment As followers of Jesus. You see. John will come back. To this concept of remaining. On more than one occasion. So we find that when Jesus. Is doing that miracle. Of the feeding of the five thousand. He says anyone who eats my flesh. And drinks. My blood. I will remain in him. And he will remain in me. And then in chapter eight, as he's talking with the the uh, people of uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, he talks about the need for people to come into freedom. And they retort, "We've always been free. How can you say that we actually need to grow in freedom?" And then he goes on to say this in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household, but the son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I want you to understand your life as having a permanent place in the house of the Father. You are sons and daughters of God. And you are to understand your identity as a human being, as sons and daughters that live constantly In permanent place of residence in the house of the Father. And so, what are you looking for? Where are you staying? And they went with him and they saw where he was remaining and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when this happened. And now he's saying, You have a permanent home of residence. And that is a place where if you inhabit, you will become free indeed. I would love to live as a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live as a fluent person and become like Richard Emmett. And that character... That clearly imprinted itself upon many people who came into this building all those years ago. I said to you that if we're to understand ancient texts, the beginning and the endings are always important. And so if we go to the very last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples... In John chapter 14, we're actually getting towards that, that technique of inclusio, the beginning and the end of Jesus' speaking to his disciples. What are you looking for? Remaining. And now, in John chapter 14, he develops and he comes back to the theme of residence, of environment. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself So that where I am, there you may be also. Now what's Jesus referring to there? How many of you have been to a funeral and you've actually heard those verses read at a funeral? Hands up if you've heard that. A good number of us, I would say at least... 50% have have heard these verses being used in connection with the funeral. And they're just wonderful words to use at a funeral. In fact, I took a a funeral of a very dear friend that I worked alongside in Leeds just a, a few days ago. And I used these very words at her funeral, at her service of celebration of Thanksgiving. And so these verses have actually been heard by many of us through that context of death and of dying, of saying farewell to someone. And I think it's that context that has actually given us that the meaning that we actually read into these verses rather than dealing with what Jesus is actually saying here. I think what we hear when we hear that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us is that Jesus goes into death and beyond death so that he prepares a place for us beyond death that we go to when we die. Now, I think that that is within the range of meaning of what Jesus is talking here about, but actually it's not the primary reference that Jesus is actually talking about. It's not about life beyond death that he's talking about. He's talking about going to the cross, being raised again so that the disciples can inhabit a new understanding of environment of the world in which they live and they can live in that place of the father's house and from that place can begin to be influenced and move and become fluent in their lives shaped by the environment in which they live a bit like Eliza Chubb was shaped Damagingly, by her environment in that South London school, that article that I've just read. But now we're talking about an environment that is warm, is, is positive, is accepting, where we find joy, where we find peace, where we find the love of God. And that what Jesus is referring to here is something that we either inhabit now, or we are neglectful of now we either inhabit the place that Jesus has prepared for us the new environment of being able to see the world in a different way or we fail to actually take up residence day by day within the house of the father and so Jesus goes on where he talks about Jesus answered them those who love me will keep my word And my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So we've got the theme again of residence, but now it is not just us living in the house of the Father, but wonderfully this concept of us becoming the place where the Father and where Christ dwell. So there's a mutual indwelling that John is actually unfolding. And then, of course, in John 15, I want you to count up the number of times the word remain or its equivalent actually appears in John 15. The word that is used here is the word abide, but actually it's the same word that is used to those disciples Uh, about those disciples remaining with jesus in john chapter one just just count them up as i go through it i am the true vine and my father is the vine grower he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit you have already been cleansed by the word that i have spoken to you abide in me start counting As I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me, and I, understood, abide in them, bear much fruit. Because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever of you does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such, a, such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. How many times the word abide? Any dispute? There may be one or two disputes there, because some of you are phenomenal where are you abiding Jesus and they abode with him they remained with him and now at the end he's describing this house that that he's going to prepare for us all to live in and he's saying now in this image of the, the vine he's saying now remain in me, abide in me remain in me abide in me Do you see what what John is trying to capture of Jesus' teaching here? It's so obvious, it's so clear. And this goes on and it, it continues on until the very final words that Jesus doesn't speak to the disciples, but actually speaks in prayer to the Father, not just about the disciples that he's speaking to there, but about the generations that follow who will believe in his name. And right at the end of John chapter 17, in that great prayer that we have there, we have this amazing turning towards us, the people who believe, generations after those first disciples. And of course he talks there about the way in which we're brought into unity. We're brought into unity with the Father and the Father is in unity with us. I ask not only on behalf of those, but also on behalf of all who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us another environmental image, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We can only influence the world as we learn to live in the environment. That we are called and that Jesus came to prepare us for, which is the environment of the Father's house. We can only learn to live fluent lives as we learn to abide in him in the house of the Father and he abides in us. That's the only way that we can fulfill the desire, I would love to live as a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And so Jesus goes on and he continues to pray. And it ends in this way, righteous father, the world does not know him, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How did Richard Emmett demonstrate that character? He demonstrated that character because God felt comfortable and at home within his character. It's been said wonderfully by someone. It takes a long time to be at home in your own life. It does. But Richard felt at home in his own life. Why? Because he knew that God dwelt there. And when God dwells in us, because we've learnt to dwell in the environment of God, we become that kind of fluent person. And it means that when we are in the environment that is full of competition, that is full of insecurity, that is full of people trying to achieve and make their way, driven people, people that are anxious and concerned about making their mark upon life, about making their life as comfortable as possible, as people actually see the environment, which is a very competitive environment, where we are called upon to be endlessly producing and performing achievement and appraisal and all the rest of it, we have learned actually that our true identity is as sons and daughters of God who have a permanent place in the house of the Father. And we draw on that day by day so that we gradually become aware that we are at home that we don't have to prove anything because in the end we are loved sons and daughters of God and as we learn to live like that so God feels more at home in our lives and he kicks off his shoes and he puts on his slippers And he sits down in the armchair of our lives. Excuse the rather familiar imagery that I use of God, but that I think I'm trying to capture in your imaginations. What I think John is leading us towards as human beings and as disciples of Jesus. Friends, we live in the same environment physically. As the other people around us. Okay, the environment changes because we have different homes, we have different experiences of family life. Some of us may be blessed with a rich and loving family life, some of you may not be. But fundamentally, we live in the same physical environment. But we are called to move from the shacks of fear. Of anxiety, of drivenness, of performance, of productivity, of meeting targets. Of achievement, of asserting ourselves. Of having to prove that we are productive human beings. We have to move from the shacks that human beings construct because they haven't learnt the wisdom of God. Into the permanent home That God has actually prepared for us in the sending of Jesus, his son, into our midst. I go to prepare a place for you. And he can only do this as he breaks through the ultimates of human existence. The ultimates of evil. And of ambiguity that lie in the hearts of all of us. He can only prepare that place for us, a spacious place and a secure place. If he goes into that place, goes through the darkness that is in the human heart, through the sin, bearing all its vengeance that comes upon him. And as he goes into the very realm of death and there he actually brings life and shows that life is ultimately what God is about in this world and not Just the passing of existence like that. And as God has done that through Jesus Christ, so he has prepared for you, my friend, my brother, my sister. He has prepared for you a place and he invites you to move from the shacks of your anxiety daily. And to move into the home of the Father because it's very difficult to live in the home of the Father. Not that it's a hard place to live, but it's hard to move from the shacks. Of our environments that are there day by day and that you'll go back into. You may even go back into it as you go back home because your home is not the place that you would want it to be. You have an aching desire for your home to be something different. But I tell you, even if that is your circumstance, and even if you find yourself in a work environment that is oppressing you at the moment, you have a permanent place as a son and daughter of God, and you've got to go and live in that even more attentively, as if you were in a nice environment from a human perspective and point of view. How do we do that? we do that as we come to worship we do that as we break bread and we share the cup we do that in the act of prayer because prayer is the very essence of the move from the house and the shacks of drivenness and of anxiety into the house of love and of belonging and in prayer we don't have to say anything What we do is to sit down and kick off our own shoes and put our own slippers and sit down in the armchair that is opposite the father who has got his feet up and we just dwell with one another. In the end, prayer is not our talk. It's the consciousness of being in the presence of father. That is the heart of prayer. It is the act of becoming conscious that you are beloved by God and that you are his precious son and daughter and it's developing our spirit so that we live out of that place. I would love to live as a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Don't you want to live in that way? I do I'm I'm desperate to have a life that is formed in that way so I can just be the kind of person that God wants me to be and I myself can become an environment for other people to have a scent of what it means to live in the house of the Father that's how I want to live that's what it is to be a witness to Jesus it isn't necessary to gob it it's to live it and out of that to speak wisdom into people's lives and I tell you out there people are desperate for it my wife and her friend were invited to take a short retreat in a school amongst the staff because the head teacher was a Christian and he thought it would be good for his staff to experience a retreat. They walked into this staff room and there these teachers were and they said, why are we having to do this? This is awful. This is, this is dreadful. You know, we... Oh, I, you know, and others were quiet and just, you know, the atmosphere was not conducive to prayer and retreat. These are not Christians, okay? Helena and Geraldine just begin to just do one or two prayer exercises, just start to to talk a little bit along the lines that I've been talking about this morning. A hush comes into that room. People start to cry because there's an ache in their heart for something else. And at the end of that time, they they say to Helena and Geraldine, You must come back. We must have a whole day retreat. And I don't know whether that will happen, but that's what they wanted. In other words, there are, there are literally thousands upon thousands of people out there who are actually aching for what we know and have. And that's the way that we're called to live in the house of the Father. I've gone on too long. There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's come and eat at the Lord's table and drink Let's sing, There is a Redeemer.